Over the summertime, we've followed a, a series of studies in John Stott's book, uh, The Radical Disciple. And as we come towards the end of this series, I want to commend that book to you once more. Uh, I don't know if anybody's had the chance to, to buy it and to read it for themselves, but I'd encourage you to do that. Uh, it's probably going to be the last book uh, that John Stott will, will give to the church and uh, I, I found it a very helpful read. In the book, he looks at eight characteristics of the radical Christian, and he reckons these are eight areas of Christian living that are commonly neglected. He chooses to focus on them because he thinks they're non-negotiables, uh, non-negotiable aspects of Christian living for those who are serious about following Jesus Christ. So far in our series, we've thought about six of those eight marks of the radical disciple. I'm going to recap very, very briefly for you. Uh, That will help jog your memory if you're someone who's been around for some or most uh, of those those studies, or if you're somebody who's been around for little or none of them. It'll give you an idea of where we've been coming from. So the first mark of the radical disciple identified by John Stott is non-conformity. It struck me as I read it that he's actually using a a more up-to-date term maybe for the the very common biblical term holiness. He says we're neither to seek to preserve our holiness by escaping from the world nor to sacrifice our holiness by conforming to the world. Secondly, he urges Christians to pursue Christ-likeness. We're to be like Christ in his incarnation in his service, in his love, in his endurance, and in his mission. Thirdly, we're to strive towards maturity. May God give us such a full, clear vision of Jesus Christ that we may grow into maturity ourselves. And secondly, that by faithful proclamation of Christ in his fullness to others, we may present others mature as well. We'll begin to see just how broad Stott's understanding of Christian living is when we see that he introduces in chapter 4 creation care as a mark of the radical disciple. I don't know if you would have included that, but he says that God intends our care of creation to reflect our love for the Creator. The fifth mark of the radical disciple is that of simplicity. All Christians claim to have received a new life from Jesus Christ. If the life is new, the lifestyle should be new also. And the last attribute of the the radical disciple, which we looked at three weeks ago, chapter 6 of the book, is the attribute of balance. He says we are both individual disciples and church members, both worshipers and witnesses, witnesses, Uh, both pilgrims and citizens. So he gave us a picture there of a very balanced uh, and comprehensive view of the Christian life. Nonconformity, Christ-likeness, maturity, creation care, simplicity, and balance. As we come now this evening to number seven of these marks of the radical disciple, I have to say this one took me by surprise. I would not have included it if somebody had said, right, choose eight marks 
of the radical disciple. And I doubt that many of you would have either. John Stott chooses dependence as a quality, a key quality of the Christian disciple. And we're going to come back to that in a moment. In the period since I returned from my summer holidays, there was a a period in there where in the space of 10 days, I was involved in three funerals, two of them here and one elsewhere. And I was reminded again of, of how funeral services work and particularly, my, my mind was focusing on the, the eulogy or the tribute that happens at these funerals uh, when a person has died. Whenever the task of writing a tribute falls to me, I, I almost always do it in consultation with the family. So I'll be visiting with the family of the deceased, and I'll talk with them about the life of the person who's died. We'll talk initially about some of the hard facts I'll draw them out. I'll allow them to tell me uh, about the the life of the person who's died. We'll we'll use these facts to build up a a sort of a biographical uh, picture. Um, Then we talk about the character often and the personality of the person who's died. And something that I often do in this conversation is I ask the family to tell me in their own words what adjectives or words come to their minds uh, when they think of their loved one who has died? One of the most common uh, things that I hear is something like this. He was very independent. Or she was fiercely independent right up until the end. To be independent... To live without relying on others is is something that's held up as a virtue in our culture, something to be admired. In chapter 7 of this book, John Stott argues to the contrary. He says that dependence, the ability to rely on God and to receive from others, is a virtue. Dependence is something to be admired. Stott tells a story uh, about an incident in his own life which seems to have brought this to the fore for him. If you know anything about the person of John Stott, he's a very able, articulate man with a a wonderful ministry, a, a worldwide reputation, and he admits himself that he'd lived relatively independently But something then happened in his life that that opened a window for him to see something that he'd been missing for a long time. Rather than me retelling his personal story, I'm going to read a short excerpt straight from the book. Stott says, Let me share with you a recent experience of mine which demonstrated my weakness and dependence. It was Sunday morning, 20th of August in 2007, and I was due to preach in All Souls Church, Langham Place, London. I was putting away some clean laundry when I tripped over the protruding feet of a swivel chair and fell between my bed and a bookcase. I knew at once that I had broken or dislocated my hip, for I could not move, let alone get up. 
I was able, however, to push the panic button I was wearing, and kind friends immediately came to my rescue. Hugh Palmer, rector of all souls, found my sermon notes and somehow managed to preach my sermon. Only later did I notice, note its appropriateness, for I had prepared an exposition of the Lord's Prayer. It consists of six petitions, three expressing our passion for the glory of God, his name, his kingdom, and his will, followed by three expressing dependence on his grace for our daily bread, forgiveness of our sins, and deliverance from evil. It had seemed to me that the two halves of the Lord's Prayer are a summary of our discipleship, our concern for God's glory, and our dependence on his mercy. Dependence is a fundamental attitude for all of us whenever we say the Lord's Prayer. Even while this sermon on dependence was being preached, it was at least partially being illustrated. Within an amazingly short time, I'd been moved from floor to stretcher, from stretcher to ambulance, from ambulance to hospital bed, from hospital bed to operating theater. I woke up to find myself gratefully supplied with a replacement hip, and in due course, I have been rehabilitated. So it goes on to explain how this, this incident led to a period of vulnerability for him before God and also before friends who helped him. He began to realize his complete dependence. The passage we read from Galatians chapter 6, we're not, we're not expounding it this evening, we're not working our way through it, but I read it because of a verse there, verse 2 of Galatians 6 that I want to draw to your attention. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you'll fulfill the law of Christ. Friends, we are designed, every one of us, to be a burden to others. I am designed to be a burden to you. And maybe I'm very good at that, I'm not sure. You'll be able to tell me. And you are created and designed to be a burden to me. This is how God intends it. The life of any, any family, and particularly the life of any local church family, is to be a life of mutual burdensomeness. Bono captured it so well in the, the marvelous U2 song, One. He says, we're one, but we're not the same. We get to carry each other. Carry each other. Friends, isn't this profound? I'm most grateful for John, to John Stott for bringing this important matter uh, to my attention, reminding me of it. We're called to be dependent on one another, even as I speak those words, I have a love-hate relationship with them. It sounds wonderful that I would depend on you and you on me, and, and that's how the, the family would be. 
I love the idea. It sounds so right. And yet it is so hard. Because if I'm honest, I want to be entirely independent of you. I want to know I can make it on my own. That I don't need anything from you. That's, that's what I want. But the truth is, if I behave like that and we all behave like that, then our fellowship will only ever be this deep. How can we really talk about sharing life together and growing together if none of us needs the other? What depth can our relationships have while we choose to remain entirely self-sufficient? We've had this conversation a few times in, in a discipleship group in our home And we have come to the conclusion that the greatest service that we can do one another in our culture and in a church like ours is to ask each other for help. The best way to love one another would be to admit that we need each other and and to allow the other to help us. I remember hearing a person talk on the subject of church fellowship one time and he said something which at the time struck me as a, um, I don't know, I just wasn't sure if I agreed, but he, he said true fellowship really only begins in a time of brokenness. You can't have deep fellowship without that kind of vulnerability. And I thought, well, Surely you can have true fellowship without. I'm beginning to be convinced that he was right. And I think, just recently, that I've seen this beginning to be played out in our community. This summer, Gareth and Angela Walls walked a a dark road Uh, Some of you will be more aware of it than others. When their young daughter, Emily, uh, battled life-threatening infection at the Royal Hospital for Sick Children. They have seen firsthand what it is to be thrown into a place where they had to rely on God and knew that they were depending also on many other people. Many of us, as we walked alongside them and and received messages that, that showed us how, how dark the situation was, many of us had a renewed sense of, of relying and depending on God in prayer. I take the liberty to say this only because I've heard them say it first. I've spoken to Gareth and Angela about this. They regard it as a very positive aspect of these dark hours that they have lived, that it's forced them into a moment of reliance on God and dependence on other people. The refusal 
to be dependent. So it turns out that that's not maturity after all. It turns out that a a refusal to to be dependent and to admit dependence is, is a sign of immaturity. A good example of this is seen in the, in the film Driving Miss Daisy, based on the Pulitzer Prize winning play by Alfred Hurey. I don't know if you know the film. It, it was, I think it won Oscars, maybe, uh, in the time when it was released. But it's a film that seems to be dealing, on the one hand, with racial tension. Uh, a black uh, servant in, in, a, in a white family. But the, there's another very important theme developed in the film, and it's the relationship between the two characters, Miss Daisy, a stubborn 72-year-old widow, and her African-American driver, Hoke. The action begins when Miss Daisy crashes her car. She puts her foot on the accelerator instead of the brake, crashes her car, and her son does a bit of research and discovers that at the age of 62, After her putting her foot on the accelerator instead of the brake, the insurance companies aren't that interested in insuring Miss Daisy. So her son tells her there's no way around it. She's going to have to get a chauffeur, someone to drive her around. She refuses at first, but uh, sorry, her son, uh, Boley, he He continues to pursue this until he finds her a driver, someone who has been driving the local judge around. Uh, He's recently died, and this driver has become free. In the beginning, Miss Daisy wants nothing to do with Hoke. There's an occasion where she blurts out, I don't need you, I don't want you, and I don't like you. Gradually, as Miss Daisy and Hoke spend time together, they begin to appreciate each other until years later she says to him, you're my best friend, really. And the film ends on a Thanksgiving day in the retirement home where Miss Daisy now lives. Bully and Hoke have come to visit her, but it's Hoke that she wants to talk to. And he notices that she hasn't eaten her pumpkin pie. Now, if you know anything about American culture, Thanksgiving without pumpkin pie doesn't work. He notices that she tries to pick up her fork, and he gently takes the plate and the fork from her, and he begins to to feed it to her. First one, then another, and then another spoonful. This film documents the transformation in their relationship from the early days where she refused to depend on him for anything to her last days when she's depending for everything. It's aging in this case that's the process that's caused that transformation. By the time the film comes to its end, Hoke is 85 years old and Miss Daisy is 97. I wonder, is God, for some of us, using our increasing age 
to draw us into relationships of deeper dependence. Deeper dependence on Him and on others. Dr. Paul Turnier, the well-known Swiss psychiatrist, spoke about this in his book, Learning to Grow Old. He said, we're called to become more personal, to become persons, to face old age with all our personal resources. We have given things priority over persons. We have built a civilization based on things rather than on persons. Old people are discounted because they're purely and simply persons whose only value is as persons and not as producers anymore. When we are old, we have the time and qualifications necessary to a true ministry of personal relationships. Wow. A true ministry of personal relationships? I'd hand in my resignation tomorrow. If I thought I could do that. A ministry only allowing one person to connect with another. John Wyatt, a friend of John Stott's, spoke on this subject and Stott records it for us. God's design for our life is that we should be dependent. We come into this world totally dependent on the love, care, and protection of others. We go through a phase of life when people will depend on us, but most of us will go out of the world totally dependent on the love, care, and protection of others. This is not an evil, destructive reality. It's part of the design, part of our physical nature which God has given us. Stott talks of how he sometimes hears older people, including Christian people, who should know better, and they say, I don't want to be a burden to anyone else. I'm happy to carry on living so long as I can look after myself but as soon as I become a burden, I'd rather die. This is wrong, he says. And then Stott points us, as he does in every other chapter of this book, he points us to Jesus. Christ himself took on the dignity of dependence. He was born a baby, totally dependent on the care of others. He needs to be fed. He needs his bottom to be wiped. He needs to be propped up when he rolls over. And yet he never loses his divine dignity. At the end on the cross, he again becomes totally dependent, limbs pierced and stretched, unable to move. And so in the person of Christ, we learn that dependence does not, cannot 
deprive a person of their dignity, of their supreme worth. If dependence was appropriate for the God of the universe, it's most certainly appropriate for us. Friends, I told you I have a love-hate relationship with this idea. When I think about it, my heart warms. When I'm asked to take even the smallest step towards it, I recoil. I thought I'd share a couple of concrete examples of, of what we're thinking about here and some steps that you might consider if you want to enter into this, this way of life, this radical disciple way. As a church a while ago, we thought of um, simple living, and we thought um, one thing that we could try to do is to share some of our stuff together. And one of the things that struck me as we've set up a, a little website to do that or, or an email address and as we've tried a few of us to share a few items together, um, we started off thinking it would help us to deal with materialism, but actually it's, it's, for me it's come down to this issue of learning to, to depend on each other a little bit more, to say that you have something that, that I need and we can help each other. Already in this experience, we've had to deal with quite a few requests, and, and mostly successfully, we've been able to help people to, to find, give and take the stuff that people need. But there's a really interesting thing happening. Many of us are finding it easier to sit and to wait for request emails that we can respond to than we're finding it to go and ask for anything. So what I want you to do is to join up and request something that you need to borrow. Maybe you think, well, goodness, that's only a very practical outworking. Folks, I'm, I'm a great believer that the whole of life is together, that whenever we make decisions like that, these change our heart. Sometimes a very concrete decision will be the thing that will help us to change our hearts. So join Share Our Stuff and see if you can learn to depend on other people in the congregation by sharing your stuff with them. I was trying to think of areas in my life where I'm struggling to depend or on others that I could share with you. And I have a, quite a funny one at the moment. For a while, I, have, I started cycling in my parish duties a while ago, and I've quite enjoyed that. And I've realized, goodness, you know, we have two cars, but because of the way our life works, I work a lot in and around the church. Um, Claire is with the kids, mostly in this vicinity. There's a lot of days where really we could get by easily with one car. So I've started to imagine what life would be like with one car. And I've thought, you know, that would be brilliant. Um, I thought that would be greener. It would save money, blah, blah, all, all those reasons. And I've realized, well, 
if, if we wanted to do that, there, there might be occasions when I would need to borrow a car. Uh, times when Claire needs the car and then I need to go and do something that I can't go and do on my bike. I need to go to a, a funeral or a, a far-off visit or something like that. And, and already I've spoken that through with a couple of close friends and they have said to me, listen, if ever you need to borrow, borrow the car, um, you know, you could borrow mine if, if you needed it for that short instant. So here I am with this scenario presenting itself that, that would work. I'm pretty sure it would work. I still don't want to do it. I still don't want to be in the position where I have to phone somebody up and say, listen, can I take you up on that offer? Can I borrow it? You know, I'd rather just be independent. I don't know if you understand what I'm saying here. But for me, this, this reveals something in my heart that I don't like. And it's something that I think this particular chapter and this, this meditation has helped me to, to come, well, to, to start to think about. Why on earth do I respond so badly to the idea that I would need to ask for your help? What does that say about me? And about the quality of, of my relationships with you? Dependence. I wouldn't have thought of it, but it's here. Galatians chapter 6, verse 2. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you'll fulfill the law of Christ. Carry each other. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for those times when you bring wisdom from the side, when it comes in in a way that we don't quite expect. Thank you for, for what's happened here this evening. Uh, thank you for the insight you've given to John Stott, that you've reminded him of an issue at the core of Christian living, and now you've brought it to us. Lord, let it sink in. Lord, birth in us a hunger for something that goes way beyond the surface. Birth in us a desire to really depend on you. Lord, to make decisions the odd time that will test our dependence on you. And Lord, birth in us too a desire to really learn to, to depend on each other and to carry each other. Lord, thank you for Jesus. Holy and pure and perfect. Willing to depend on a mother for milk. 
and a father to teach him to walk, to talk, and to work. Thank you that Jesus was willing to to be nailed to a cross in weakness to be strong. Lord, we pray as we pray so often, make us more like Jesus. He's the joy of our hearts. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.